As Amanda mentioned, we find our passage of Scripture today in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the early part of that sermon in the fifth chapter, verses 43 through 48. If you have your ESV Bible with you or you can find it in your bulletin insert, we'll use this as a unison Reading, You know, I've been on vacation for two weeks and was away at Synod but the week before that, and so I had to prepare this in advance, like about four weeks in advance. I had no idea uh, the kind of tragedy that would take place uh, in Charleston while on vacation, but God knew that that tragedy would happen, and this is a very appropriate passage for us to think about when we see those kinds of atrocities happen uh, to Christian people, to brothers and sisters in the faith. So let's read the word of God together. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. On July the 8th, 1838, the 7th President of these United States, General Andrew Jackson, informed a particular pastor in his community, Dr. John Edgar, that he wanted to become a member of the Presbyterian Church and receive communion. And according to the account from Jackson's biographer, the pastor asked the president about his conversion, and then he asked him about his convictions, and he gave his approving nod with each satisfactory answer that the president gave. But Dr. Edgar didn't just ask one or two questions to be polite, you know, since it was the president of the United States. He probed deeper. And finally, after several questions, he said, General, there's one more question, which it's my duty to ask you. Can you forgive all of your enemies? Jackson was visibly stunned and then said, my political enemies I can freely forgive, but as for those who abused me when I was serving my country in the field, that is a different case. This was an honest answer from Jackson, but an answer with which the pastor was not satisfied because he kept pushing that as Christian people, we must forgive all. We must forgive every person. 
forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive our debtors. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. You see, forgiveness is important because it seems to me that love precedes forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do in this text, to love our enemies. I say love precedes forgiveness, at least from God's standpoint. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God shows his love for us, Romans 5 in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now Paul calls us enemies two verses later there in Romans 5, enemies who have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. The love of God is expressed in the offer of forgiveness that we have through the work of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus speaks to this need for us to love our enemies here in this so-called Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is telling all of those people who might be thinking about following him as well as others who have already committed to follow him what it's all about to be a member of this kingdom of God that is at hand. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, kingdom living, how day in and day out a member of God's kingdom should conduct themselves. And our passage falls within that section of Jesus' teaching where he's giving his interpretation of the will of God contrasted with that of the old or what we would call with that of tradition. God's will contrasted with tradition. That's why Jesus says over and over again in this section, you have heard it that it was said, but I say to you. Now what we must understand is that Jesus is not eliminating the law with his words. You know, Jesus knew that the law of God was truth. Jesus, in fact, said that I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The difference was that for Jesus, obedience of the law was not something that should somehow cut us off from other people. In other words, living by the law was not some sort of fence that we construct around ourselves, but rather obedience to God's will was in effect an all-inclusive love of not only the body of Christ, but indeed even those of the world, even those who stand against everything in which we believe. This is why Jesus says something like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that... Now you have to notice those two words. He's telling us to love our enemies, yes. He's telling us to pray for those who persecute us, but why would we do something like that? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. This is an extremely relevant passage for us to look at, and not just because our children have been studying the theme of love in this uh, weekend vacation Bible school, 
but also because we live in a world today where people are more and more persecuting Christians. We live in a world where someone with hate in their heart walks into a church and and kills those who are there to worship. We live in a world where Christians are pulled out of their churches and decapitated. We live in a world where more and more uh, the truth of God is frowned upon and that all things must go the way of the world. Well, why should we love our enemies? Why would Jesus say something as radical as that? He's telling us to do this because that makes us like God who sends His blessing of rain not just on the just people but on the unjust as well. In other words, Jesus is saying that we have to emulate God. We have to begin with God in order to give a true vision of what love really is. Because as we know too well, our love is imperfect. Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, tells of a student who once asked a rabbi this question. The Talmud declares that the stork is called by a Hebrew word that means the devoted or the loving one because he gives so much love to his mate and his young. If that's the case, why then is he classed in the scriptures with the unclean birds? And the rabbi answered and said, because he loves only his own. That's the trouble with you and me sometimes. We give love only to our own, to our own family, to our own church, to our own kind, whatever that means. Our love may be warm and deep, but it's seldom broad and wide. And while this may be somewhat natural for us to love our own, what we have to see here is that Jesus is calling us away from a self-love of those like us in order to care for those outside of our small circle of natural affections. Is this not what Jesus portrays in the parable of the Good Samaritan? You remember how he transforms the lawyer's question there of, of who is my neighbor? How he transforms that so that the key emphasis is on which one of the three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved neighborly to the man who had fell among thieves and was on the side of the road left for dead. The Samaritan did. Someone who should have had nothing to do with Jews because they were enemies for all intents and purposes. And yet he loved the Jewish victim as God would have loved him with a, a generous and abundant and even sacrificial love. Jesus taught that the love that comes somewhat naturally to us, this love for our own, is insufficient, insufficient for God's people because it fails to, to display the large range of God's goodness. God's love is extravagant. And not only that, but I think that Scripture portrays that God's love is risky. 
And as His people, as people who are trying to be like Him and and live like Him each and every day, we're supposed to embody that same type of overwhelming and risk-taking love. Now, uh, the pragmatists among us might be thinking we could respond to all this by saying loving our enemies makes no sense. It wastes our time and energy and resources to love people who couldn't give a flip about God or about us or about anyone else. And if you're thinking that way, you're right. It may not make sense to our finite minds. But the prophet Isaiah reminds us that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And that God's ways are not our ways. When we look for practicality, we're thinking like an American. We're not thinking like a member of the kingdom of God. We're looking at results. We're looking at the bottom line. We're thinking about what's most cost effective. God's not interested in efficiency so much as He's interested in obedience. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight, which means we have to believe that God's ways are the best for us to live whether we understand them or not which means we're trusting God to use our obedience in love for His purposes and His will even if we don't understand it, even if we think it's not cost-effective. You see, Jesus calls us to love our enemies not because it works necessarily, but because that's the way that God the Father loves. Another way to think about this is to ask the question, wasn't it a waste that Jesus should leave his rightful place with the Father and come to this earth and take on the limitations of flesh and live a perfect and sinless life just to be killed 33 years later? He came to this earth, he loved his enemies, and he was killed for it. There's nothing cost-effective about that, but that's the way God's love is. And and we've been called to have that same type of love. This command from Jesus to love our enemies has been called the most difficult as well as the most ignored command in the Bible. But when we love our enemies, we powerfully demonstrate the truth of the gospel in a way that has a wonderful integrity. And while we may not like our enemies, while we may be appalled at what they do, that's okay because God's love is not some kind of emotional affection. Rather, it's a matter of willing and working for the good of people just as God did in Christ regardless of who they are. You see, that's why verse 45 is so important, where we're told that God makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
That's an excellent illustration of his love for us, but even better is the personal love he's given through the gift of his only begotten son, Jesus, into this world to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the world. We have to remember that the truth of God's word tells us that Jesus died not only for for faithful, uh, kind-hearted, and respectful people, but also for disloyal, despicable, rebellious people, the kind of people that denied him, the kind of people that put him on the cross, meaning people just like you and me. You see, we have to take on this label of of an enemy. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies. You and I are enemies. We're enemies of God because of the sin in our hearts and our lives. We have to take on that label of enemy and own it in order to to even begin to understand the love that God has offered to us in the gift of Jesus. It's when we begin to understand that forgiveness and how much we have been forgiven that we begin to love God and serve and love others, whether they're easy to love or not. Is this not what Jesus teaches in Luke 7 when he's eating with Simon the Pharisee? You know, that's the little story where this woman comes in and begins to wash Jesus' feet and Simon's thinking in his mind, if he knew what kind of woman this is, he'd have nothing to do with her. And Jesus knew what he was thinking. And so Jesus tells this little story about two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, that is about a year and a half salary, and the other who only owed 50, less than two months salary. And Jesus asked, Jesus said, you know, the creditor forgave both of them. And he said, Simon, which one do you think would love more? Simon answered, the one I suppose to whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And I think that's one way Jesus is telling you and me that we all start out in the same place. We're all on the same level playing field. We're in great need of forgiveness. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, You he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the desires of body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We can can fly over that verse so easily. Like the rest of mankind. That's how we were. Like people who murder and rape. Like people who terrorize people. Like people who've known nothing but war and weapons their entire lives and so they kill and kill and kill. We're just like them. Like the rest of mankind. So we begin to see that only as we love those who hate us, only as we share, show care for those who seek To do us harm, do our lives begin to adequately proclaim the truth of God's love in Jesus Christ 
who sent his son into the world to deal with us when we were yet his enemies. When I was younger, I never watched uh, The Twilight Zone. That just was a little bit too far out for my taste. Uh, But I once read about one of their particular episodes was in a futuristic world where a man had been convicted of the crime of coldness. Coldness. He had been insensitive and unsociable to the people around him. And so his society sentenced him to a year of what they called invisibility. They stamped a mark on his forehead, and for a year he would have to live as an invisible person. Now, people could still see him, but they would see that mark and and not talk with him, not have any form of, of relationship, no anything. And when he first started serving this year's sentence, he thought, there's nothing to this. I mean, I can walk in any store and take whatever I want. I can go into any restaurant and eat whatever I want and take it because they're not going to say anything to me. And he he made light of it. But his thinking began to change. The longer, the more weeks he went without conversation and without companionship. And one evening he happened to meet out on the street a woman who had the same mark as him. He could tell, and he begged her to recognize him and to talk to him. But she had just begun to serve her sentence. And so she ran away afraid. And for many months he suffered in this agony of isolation until his sentence was finally completed, and it it made a difference in his life. He was much warmer, much more caring of a person after having experienced this year. But soon his new, more loving existence was tested in an unexpected way because he almost bumped into this same woman out on the street one day that he had begged to talk with earlier. And now she was the one who was nearing the end of her sentence and she was desperate to have someone notice her, to have someone talk to her, to have someone touch her, and she just begged and pleaded with him right there on the street, and he just passed her by. And she fell to the ground, mumbling, you're so cold, you're so cold. Hearing those words, feelings of compassion, welled up within him and overflowed to the point that he turned around and wrapped his arms around her. And the other people on the street saw this happening and they began to move away. And all of a sudden, blaring loud speakers said, unacceptable behavior, unacceptable behavior. You see, the man's love and caring had gone beyond the limits deemed appropriate by his society while previously condemned for being cold, now he was being condemned for being unacceptably loving. What if we were condemned in that same way? What if we as a congregation lived the love of God in such a way 
that if condemnation came down upon this church, it would come because we were unacceptably loving. Do you think maybe that's why Jesus was killed? It's something to think about.